Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Lee's in Context, and I'm very, very excited to have Dr. D.A. Don Carson on the broadcast today. If you don't know of D.A. Carson's contributions, work, and ministry, well, I don't know what to say. He is a voracious publisher, author, speaker, engaging theologian. He has been at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School since 1978. He is one of the co-founders of the Gospel Coalition. We have a lot of friends that are big fans of the Gospel Coalition. He's authored 60-plus books, 250-plus articles and abstracts. A lot of people would consider him a pastor's pastor. I first really discovered you, if that's fair to say, was in the late 1999-98 time frame. You gave the W.H. Griffith Thomas Lecture Series at Dallas Seminary, and I read those articles in Bibsack. And then later, you, if I understand correctly, that became a book, and I have the difficult doctrines of the love of God, and you also turned those into devotionals. But those are profound lectures that really influenced and helped me, Don, over the years, and I know many people as well. So that was my first introduction to you. And then during my time in Chicago, we bumped into each other occasionally. You came to Moody when I was there and spoke in chapel a number of times. So it's great to see your face and great to talk to you about your newest publication. So how are you, sir? I'm fine. It's nice to see you again, too. Great to be with you. I was going through the book trying to see which ones I would highlight that I've read, and I thought, you know, there are just too many. (laughs) So let's just go to your new text, because whenever a handbook of theology or a single volume comes out, I always gobble it up. I love single volume texts because they put so many things together. Pastors in particular, we have giant libraries, we've got Kittle, and, you know, to have time to read Kittle takes some, some discipline. And you have multi-volume sets and everything. And so when a single volume comes out, edited by someone like you, it causes me to, you know, okay, this is important. And let's talk, first of all, about the idea of the Old Testament as it's quoted in the New Testament, and then we'll get into the text proper. So give us Dr. Carson's way of handling when an Old Testament passage finds its way in the New Testament, and we go, what do we do with this text? Some instances where the New Testament quotes the older very straightforward. And then there are others where it's hard to see what the connection is at all. Many Christians have had difficulty along those lines over the years. I remember reading John Broaddus's commentary on Matthew many years ago. And that is a profound commentary. It's a very good piece of work, even though it's 150 years old now. But one of the interesting things about that commentary is that whenever he comes across a passage where Matthew quotes the Old Testament, and Broadus doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't understand how you got from the old to the new view. And instead of bluffing, he would simply say, I don't have a clue what's going on with it, but this is the word of God, the old that it's true, and someday perhaps I'll understand it, which is at least a, a humble way of approaching the whole thing. But nevertheless, I am convinced that we are supposed to understand more than we sometimes do. A lot of my work over the last 40 or 50 years has been plugging away at the question, how is this Old Testament passage being used in the New? A few years ago, almost 20 years ago, Greg Beal and I edited a book called Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And it looked at every passage in the New Testament that quotes the Old or alludes to the Old and asks, what's going on? How does this work? How do we understand this? So what I've tried to do 
with my colleagues in this more recent book, the Dictionary of the New Testament and the Old Testament, is instead of looking at every single passage, sort of running through them like a commentary on commentaries, we've tried to distill down to patterns in which the New Testament is using the Old, and thus learn what's going on in the human author's mind, and thus insight into what God is doing. If God wants us to understand this, then we should be expending some mm-hmm. mental energy to get to the point where we can explain it to others. I confess I've devoted a lot of my life to that sort of question over the last several decades. I don't claim to have all the answers, that's for sure. But I think I, I can say that I understand a lot more than I did 40 or 50 years ago. It's glorious. It's wonderful to see mm-hmm. how sometimes simply, sometimes with considerable complexities, with patterns, with allusions, verbal links and so on, you can see what is going on in Matthew's mind as he's quoting the Old Testament, mm-hmm. Luke's mind or Paul's mind or the mind of the writer of the Epistle the Hebrews and so on. And gradually it becomes more straightforward, more glorious, and you, you see glimpses into the mind of God himself who put the Bible together for us, for our learning, for our contemplation, for our conformity to Christ. The book we're talking about is a Baker publication called A Dictionary of the New Testament Use in the Old Testament. Dr. Carson, along with Dr. Beale, Benjamin Glad, and Andrew Nacelli have contributed to this. Now, for folks that haven't seen a text like this before, you've got north of 100 contributors. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I can't remember the exact number, but a good number. Some of the articles that I'm just going to scan through, Abraham and the Abraham tradition, of course, different key texts that you go to. I thought it was interesting that you have a good dive into Ecclesiastes, love. Of course, each of the Gospels has a rather lengthy section on them. The idea of shalom. So when a person picks up a text like this, they're going to go, well, how do I even start using it? I'm presuming the primary audience is going to be a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, someone who is teaching expositionally through a book of the Bible, and they come to a passage. Is that the intended reader for this? Pretty close. If you're working through a book of the Bible and you come across a place where the text is quoting the Old Testament text, then the easiest way into it is the earlier book that I mentioned, Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament, so that you can follow the canonical order. I have a a friend who says he never preaches from any part of the Bible nowadays without checking the index of that commentary. Sure. Because although it's a commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament, it indexes all of the parts of the Old Testament that are picked up in the New. So you're working along on Genesis 12 or something, and it's worth looking up how Genesis 12 is used or alluded to in many Mm -hmm. places in the New Testament to put together the links that tie the Bible together. The difference with this one, as opposed to the commentary, is that the commentary follows the order of the biblical books and the the chapters and so on. So you look it up as you'd look up any passage in Scripture. You look it up because you know the books in the Bible and their order and so on. But sometimes you want to know not necessarily exactly what Luke is doing when he alludes to some passage or other in in the Pentateuch, what you want to see is what patterns of use of the Old Testament are in the New. What is the way that the author is quoting the Old Testament? So that you're learning the methods, the logic, the mental outlook, the priorities 
of the New Testament authors, who, after all, are presenting us with God's own revelation uh, mm-hmm. for our understanding. So, it organizes material really quite differently. For example, in this more recent book, there's a chapter on the extent to which we today can repeat apostolic hermeneutics. In other words, when the apostates and their colleagues are writing New Testament books, to what extent can we duplicate their readings of the Old Testament? Let me ask you, you've mentioned patterns a couple of times now. So I'm thinking you're you're thinking differently than interpretation or hermeneutic. You're talking about a repeated way the Old Testament is referenced? Yes. It's almost hard to know where to begin. But let me give you one or two examples, and then you'll see what I mean. Sometimes the Pentateuch gives some explicit instructions, law, teaching, which are then picked up in the New Testament in some way or other. Sometimes something's going on in the New Testament where the author says, this occurred in order to fulfill the words of the prophet saying, and then there's a quotation from the Old Testament. Okay. That's very common in Matthew's gospel. In, in the, the New Testament, the two New Testament books that quote the Old Testament very often and sometimes creatively, hard to understand at first, are Matthew and Hebrews. Now, other books sometimes give challenges as well, but Matthew and Hebrews are especially rich in challenges. But after a while, you begin to see how they're working. Let's take Hebrews. Hebrews is constantly referring to Old Testament quotations, Old Testament snippets, where the author of Hebrews is pointing out that the New Testament fulfillment is picking up a pattern of revelation in the Old Testament. The sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priestly system, and so on. The New Testament author, the writer to the Hebrews, alludes to these things many, many times, but frequently what he's doing is showing that if you understand those passages in the Old Testament that talk about this tabernacle and the temple and the Day of Atonement and all the other things that are bound up with the Exodus, you eventually see that they're not accidents. They've been baked into the Bible so that if you understand the Bible correctly, you will see how those Old Testament passages do point forward to, anticipate, announce, proclaim something deep that's going on so that the ultimate high priest is Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus, the ultimate king is Jesus, the ultimate priest is Jesus, and all of these Old Testament structures are actually melded in the Old Testament itself to give you a better understanding of how the Bible is put together. So that at the end of the day, I hope that Christians, after a lifetime of Bible reading, will read an Old Testament depiction of the Day of Atonement, let's say Leviticus 16, and will not think, well, that's stuff that you learn in seminary, but I don't have to worry about that. But we'll already see how those themes are picked up by later biblical writers, supremely by New Testament writers, and point to Jesus so that eventually you do see how the Bible really does, chapter by chapter, book by book, as a whole, point to the Lord Jesus who fulfills these. Mm-hmm. It's a way of putting the Bible together and centering it on Jesus and his gospel. Now, one of the longer quotations is in Hebrews chapter 8, and this is where the author of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant. He begins with Jeremiah 31, 31. He goes on for quite a while. I'm going to read part of it. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, 
for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to them in their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then he comments, the author of Hebrew, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, that's a complicated passage by any measure, but in your text, you mentioned that, you know, this is one of the longer sections. So, so be the professor for a few minutes and explain what the author is doing with this Old Testament reference. Well, the last bit that you quoted, which is chapter 8, verse 13, is fundamental to the particular usage in Hebrews 8 of Jeremiah 31. There are some people to whom the writer to the Hebrews is addressing his material who are wanting to hang on to the Old Testament stipulations of the law. And here the author is saying, no, don't you understand that those stipulations of the law are set in contexts which announce their obsolescence? If God says, I'm going to send you a new covenant, then implicitly he is announcing that the old covenant is, relatively speaking, old. So if you want to hang on to the old covenant exactly as it appears in the Old Testament, then you're not recognizing that God himself has announced that a new covenant is coming. If the new covenant is coming, that requires us to think through the relationships between the old covenant and the new covenant. Where does the old covenant high priest end up? Who's the high priest under the new covenant? How do you move from one to the other? That's what a lot of Hebrews is dealing with. But even more fundamentally than that, to announce that it's a new covenant is already announcing in fact, that in principle, the old covenant is already old. It's passe. It's obsolescent in some sense or other. In some sense, it goes on and has enduring force that has to be unpacked and explained. But in other respects, it has been superseded by the new covenant. And to hang on to the details of the old covenant and not see a new development that has taken place is to miss the glories of of what's new. I have a friend who a few years ago wrote something on the newness of the New Covenant. He started off simply by taking an concordance and looking up every place in the New Testament that talks about the New Covenant or the New Sacrifice or the New Temple. Well, whatever's new. In fact, we open our Bibles and we notice that it's divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's a chronological distinction, but it's also talking about how the Bible is put together. Instead of treating the Bible merely as a package of texts that you can quote at random to find a verse for the day to encourage you, you see that there is a storyline, there is development, there is growth, there is one thing pointing to another, anticipating another, and until there's a whole trajectory, a pattern. And that is explicit in this particular passage in Hebrews chapter 8. The old today is coming when something new is going to take place. In some ways, it's like the old, but in some ways, it's new. It's not like the old, he says. And in fact, there is something 
intrinsic to that form of argumentation that he's already announcing the principial obsolescence of, of the old covenant structure. Talk a little bit, and I often make a sort of an excursus when I talk about unilateral covenants versus bilateral covenants, because I think too many times folks in a local church don't understand that we have an Abrahamic covenant, a Noahic covenant, a new covenant that are unilateral. In this section, of course, he's talking about a bilateral covenant, correct? It's not terminology that I... I figured you wouldn't. <laughs> customarily knew. If I understand what you mean by it, a covenant that is binding on both sides? Correct. And in, in this case, they didn't fulfill where Abrahamic is going to be fulfilled, right? The new covenant is going to be fulfilled. But in the Hebrew text, he's saying they didn't do their part, the blessings and cursings, correct? That's true. But at the same time, the Old Testament does insist that God keeps his promises yes. regardless of what you do. Correct. But there were consequences if but they broke those. Right. Yeah. And unlike the unilateral covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, and New, I would argue, God is going to do those, period, right? He's certainly going to do what God says he's going to do. Right, right. So when we're in the Hebrews text, we're, and again, correct me, you're the professor, I'm the student, where we're talking about the superiority of Christ over angels. We're talking about the new and old collision is the way I would use the word and how the the Christian at that time, the author is writing to, is going back to the law in some sense. They're wanting to go back to a, the way Judaism was and it's a little bit populist, but you can't go back, so you have to go forward would be a way of thinking. And in that text in particular, is that's not what he's trying to help the Christian in that time understand? Yes, indeed. Okay. And the reason why there is a new structure is because God has given a new structure. God has made a new covenant. And the announcement of a new covenant principally underscores the fact that the preceding covenant is now old. Right. And that's what is shown even by the what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament announces the obsolescence of the Old Testament, if I may put it that way. Now, obviously, that can be distorted. And That's what I'm trying to caution against, that we're not turning the page and saying we're done with it. No, no. <laughs> Let me go to another one that I find interesting in Romans 7. And this referent, I guess, is three times from the Old Testament. I love Romans chapter 7 for many reasons, but let me just read verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, here's a quotation, you shall not covet. Now, any casual reader goes, why is he going back to one example in Exodus 20:17 of the Decalogue? And I guess it's also in Deuteronomy and Joshua. What's Paul doing there? And how do we step back for a second? How do I understand Paul using this quotation from the Old Testament in Romans 7? I think what he's doing is showing one of the functions of the law as it's given in redemptive history. One of the functions of the giving of the law is to make us aware of where we fall short. It exposes our sin, our failure. It's not given in order to redeem us in itself. The law doesn't do that. It shows us where we are lost and hopeless and self-deceived. Thus, it has a 
an ongoing pastoral function. It has a, an instructive pedagogical function because it points forward to a new covenant, which brings with it the Redeemer and the sacrifice for sin that like, brings to the end all sacrifices for sin. Sometimes what the author is doing when he's quoting the Old Testament is showing how that Old Testament passage functions in the whole pattern of redemption found in the Bible. If you insist that the Bible answer the questions that you set it, you may get wrong answers because the questions that the Bible sets are what sets the agenda, not what we set. So a passage like the one you've quoted from Exodus 20 showing up elsewhere as well on covetousness, the author is concerned to show us how that law should function in the sweep of redemptive history and in our own lives and in our own thinking, not abusing the law by making it function to answer questions that it is not set to answer. In Matthew chapter 5, this is a cadence of you've heard it said, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you, verse 21, you've heard it said that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Then that's the quotation from Exodus 20 again, one of the Decalogue. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. I've often used the illustration that Jesus turns up the heat. You knew that murder was wrong. I'm telling you, if in your heart and mind you're angry, your sin is just as palpable as if you're a murderer. When Jesus is quoting these, it gets, let's say, a little more interesting. Not that it should or shouldn't be, but it gets more intriguing to the reader going, Jesus is calling the Old Testament quotations illustratively to his audience, Matthew 5, 6, 7, and 8, that whole discourse. So what's Christ doing there and what's Matthew doing here? Well, in that passage and through much of Matthew 5, 21 to 48, Jesus is showing that the law properly understood points to goodness and badness, points to what sin looks like, what guilt looks like. And it is provided not so that it gives us a pattern that we can live up to in order to escape judgment, but rather to expose our guilt and our shame so that we've got to find solution somewhere else. And that solution comes in the flow of the biblical's revelation in the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest, the, the one who does atone for our sin and so on. But you don't see the need for that even unless you see just how awful our situation is, just how terrible sin and guilt and shame and and hate and murder and so on are. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you the truth, he is showing how it is possible to abuse Scripture. Mm -hmm. The devil himself abuses Scripture when he's in a conversation with Jesus at the time of the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. He quotes the Bible to wrap Jesus up in knots. He thinks that's what he's going to do. Jesus immediately answers by quoting more Scripture to show that the Scripture that the devil is quoting, he's ripping out of context and is not understanding it as it actually lies there in the text. The Bible is not a magical textbook where you just have to quote it and you utter your abracadabra and you get an answer. There's a moral obligation to understand what the text says and then seeing what it says to respond faithfully, wisely, humbly, so that we learn from what it says within the context of of the Bible's whole storyline. That long string of, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, 
the so-called antithesis of Matthew 5, yes. one and following. It starts off by Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to destroy the abolish, law. Abolish, yeah. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, that's assuming that those law texts have as one of their primary functions the pointing forward to, the anticipating of, that which is fulfilled in Christ and in his teaching and suffering mm-hmm. work. He's telling us how to read those texts faithfully, to understand them aright, to fit them into the pattern of God's unfolding self-disclosure. And then he gives all of those six examples in the so-called antithesis. I think it's a mistake, therefore, for Christians to think that Matthew five seventeen to 20 is really saying something like this. You have heard that it was said, and you can read it any way you like. It's entirely up to you. He's saying, no, 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 no. I haven't come to destroy them. I've come to not keep them, not maintain them, not simply show their deeper meaning, but to fulfill them. That is to bring to pass that to which they pointed. There is a prophetic function to the mm-hmm. law, an anticipatory function to the law. And Jesus has come to bring that prophetic function out, to bring to pass that to which it pointed. I have not come to destroy them, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That, too, is an important part of reading the Bible in a way that is faithful to its own self-understanding. I so appreciate that section of Matthew because even as an early young Christian, when I read through it, I thought, there's no hope. (laughs) You know, I can't do anything. When you take the chapter 5 through 8 together, to be righteous in Christ, it's impossible would that he become the righteousness of God, and then we're in Christ, so we're now covered by what he will fulfill, right? Right. It's a remarkable section. Let me back out a little bit. In the introduction of the text, you spend a little bit of time talking about the interpretation of Scripture, and this is an area you and I come from fairly similar frameworks on how we interpret the Bible. But today, and I know you've heard a lot of bad preaching and unfortunate teaching, the way it's used today in interpretation, it really scares me, Don. I don't see a rigor of, you know, original, you know, literary, plain sense, normal sense, you know, grammar, syntax taken into account. It's what it means to me. It's almost a postmodern progressive view. We're talking pretty academically right now, but I want to take it down a notch to ask you, for a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a disciplined Bible student, what advice do you give them on how to interpret some of the things we're talking about? The possibility of interpreting mistakes or bad habits and so on is manifold. I wrote quite a different book for seminary students that is pretty widely read by just ordinary Sunday school teachers and so on as well. That's called exegetical fallacies. Yes. Mistakes that you can make in their exegesis and you're reading out of stuff. Occasionally that, I've been charged with discouraging people by that book. But in point of fact, if you read a book like that and learn what the mistakes are in interpretation, then eventually you become more humbly confident of reading the text without making mistakes. You become a better interpreter of Scripture. So that little book looks at word studies that are mistaken, grammatical studies that are mistaken, 
who tries to present the examples so clearly that you can see them for yourself and you learn to avoid such mistakes yourself. Then higher up the ladder of discussion, then you get to things like obviously New Testament would be old and we make mistakes there. You alluded to something a moment ago, and I was thinking back on the number of times people completely take a passage out of context and use it, you know, almost sweepingly. If my people who are called by my name will repent and humble themselves, I will bless. I mean, I've heard so many Christian politicians use that verse, and I go, that has nothing to do with a country called America. It's almost a flip of your book to say how many people are misapplying Old Testament citations that they haven't even bothered to look at the context of who those words are spoken to at what time. I'm digressing quite a bit, but it strikes me, I'm sure you've encountered this among papers and students and sermons over the 50 plus years of teaching. There are certain patterns that are especially religious. Okay, let me land the plane on the final question for you. You and I are talking about this book. What one or two Old Testament citations in the New Testament encouraged you or surprised you or you wheeled back in your chair and went, oh my word, I never understood this fully in the context. And now I see what the author was doing in the New Testament by calling on this Old Testament passage. This dictionary, the book we're talking about now, there were four of us, and they were the main two editors, but we had close to 100 contributors. When you have that many contributors, and the editors read all of the material. The fact is you cannot help but learn from, from one another. One of the ones that shows up strongest is uh, the way the book of Revelation actually quotes a decent clip from the Old Testament only twice. But it alludes to the Old Testament. Scores and scores and hundreds of times. If I want somebody to start becoming more careful and deciding how that the Revelation uses the Old Testament. What I strongly, strongly urge is that the readers spend quite a lot of serious time rereading Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and certain other passages in the Old Testament, most of which are not well known, but which the author of Revelation, John, alludes to again and again and again and again, and clearly expects his readers to pick up on the allusions. So if I had to point to one thing, it's how important it is to read and read, read and read and read the Old Testament text until our minds have saturated the text and we can pick up the allusions for ourselves. We become more efficient at doing so and have a better influence of how the Bible holds together, mends together, like one passage sheds light on another and so on. Two quotes come to mind. One that Lewis Berry Chafer was famous for was study for a lifetime. And when I was in Dallas, I thought he meant study your four or eight years for your whole life. And I realized, no, he meant study all of your life. <laughs> and the other one was Spurgeon. No one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. I've just appreciated you and so many scholars who have spent their whole life and continue to study and continue to work on it because we can rest on our laurels. We can say, I've studied that before. I've preached to that before. I know it well. I'm sure you've had the experience I've had teaching through a book and finishing going, now after a year, I should go back and teach it again because I understand all the things I got wrong the first go around. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and even the importance of grasping context. And when I was a child, my father would say, a text 
you know, the context becomes a pretext. Pretext. Yep. A lot of Christians like the book of Isaiah because it has so many little clippets that are memorable, moving. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned into one commission. We have the Lord and him. The iniquity of us all. He shall have the name and God with us. And on and on and on. So many, many, many things that we find encouraging. But one of the things we forget, they are themselves locked into the flow of the prophecy of Isaiah. When you start looking at the flow of chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, you see what the argument of those chapters is when you follow the flow, then the actual little snippets actually become much richer, much, much deeper, much more nuanced, much weightier, more compelling. But you don't see that until you catch the flow of the text, you know, the sweep of the text, the development. So I've become more and more convinced since I've got older how important it is to encourage people in the pews selling a pulpit and to read texts in their contents. Amen and amen, Dr. D.A. Carson. This newest contribution, the Dictionary of the New Testament Use in the Old Testament, a Baker Academic publication. It may not be for all of our friends, but it's certainly a vital contribution to an area that most Bible students will struggle with at some point is why did the author make this citation from the Old Testament and how do I understand that contextually in the Old as well as in the New? Don, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. God bless your ongoing ministry. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.